This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher in for Julia Chatterley. Just ahead on today's show, Picket Power. Hollywood actors are officially on strike after contract negotiations with major studios break down. Actors joining screenwriters on the picket line, effectively shutting down most of U.S. film and TV production. The latest on the Hollywood walk of blame (laughs) just ahead. Plus, the heat is on. Parts of Europe bracing for record temperatures of well over 38 degrees Celsius as the summer swelter intensifies. We are live in Rome. Uh, with the very latest. And Bank Bonanza, U.S. financial giants J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo and Citigroup are out with second quarter results as U.S. earnings season gets underway. All three firms beating expectations on both the top and the bottom lines as well. Their shares are all higher pre-market trading. Wells Fargo, in fact, leading the pack, uh, set to rise by over 3%. Strong bank earnings help give a boost to the blue chips in early trading. The Dow set to rise by more than Half a percent uh, when the bell opens uh, in 30 minutes from now. All the major averages coming off their fourth straight day of gains. Europe mostly higher now too. More on the markets later on in the program. But first, no legal basis. Vladimir Putin saying that the Wagner Group, Wagner Mercenary Group, simply does not exist as a legal entity. The Russian president says he also offered the Wagner fighters options for their future service. Alexander Marquardt joins us live now. So, um, Alex, what exactly did Putin mean by that? And what has happened to Wagner fighters since the failed uprising? Are they in Belarus? Are they still on the battlefield in Ukraine? Where exactly are the majority of them right now? They are, we understand, and this is according to the Pentagon just yesterday, Zane, that they are still in Russian-occupied Ukraine. Uh, But according to the Pentagon, they are not operational. They they are not fighting. So it's a very good question of of what they're going to do next. In terms of what Putin has now said about Wagner, it it appears that he's being rather coy. He's he's playing with some legalese. Um, But what I think is clear is that Wagner, as we've known it uh, since, since the war started here in Ukraine, does no longer exist, that they're, they're not going to be fighting in Ukraine anymore. What shape the organization takes beyond Ukraine, say in the Middle East and Africa, where they have significant operations, that remains to be seen. Of course, the fate of Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, of course, still very much in the balance. One thing that Putin is, is saying here is that Russia uh, does not have a law that allows mercenary groups to operate. They are illegal. But Wagner is technically a private military company. Here's a bit more of what Putin said in this interview with Commerçant newspaper. He says, we do not have a law for private military organizations. That simply does not exist. There is no such legal entity. And he goes on to admit that it is not an easy question. Zane, this interview that he gave was fascinating. And he really got into the details of that meeting on June 29th with members, the most senior members of Wagner, right after... Uh, they carried out this insurrection and and marched towards Moscow. 
Putin said that some 35 Wagner commanders gathered together in the Kremlin. Um, and during that meeting, Putin said, you can continue fighting and you can continue fighting under your direct commander, whose uh, call sign is Sedoy, which means gray hair. And apparently, according to Putin, the men nodded in affirmation. Um, and then Prigozhin, Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of Wagner, who was sitting in the front row, apparently told Putin, no, the guys do not agree with this decision. So how that meeting ended, we do not know. But it does appear that uh, Putin is trying to divide Prigozhin from his forces, perhaps try to weaken Prigozhin while still maintain the benefits of, of, of the Wagner guys who are still a considerable fighting force. Same. And Alex, let's just talk about what happened overnight uh, in Ukraine. Ukrainian air defense forces basically saying that they shot down about 20 Iranian-made drones aimed at Kyiv overnight. What more can you tell us? Well, the vast majority of them uh, taken down. This is uh, the, the latest in, in a wave, almost nightly uh, attacks that we have seen from the Russians, uh, Zane, uh, primarily with drones. Uh, they have been flown uh, over the past few days up from southern Russia, uh, the majority of which have been taken down by Ukraine's air defenses, uh, often resulting in damaged buildings uh, when the debris falls. Um, so this is part of the continuation of uh, the, the, really that what Ukrainians consider to be a, a terror campaign. Russia has not been able to make any kind of uh, or any significant battlefield advances, as I, but, but they are very much on the defensive, um, and they are able to maintain those defenses quite easily, um, or rather they have been able to maintain those defenses, even the, despite the fact uh, that Russia, or that Ukraine rather, is really throwing as much as they can at them in this counteroffensive, to try to claw back as much territory as they can. Zane? Right, Alexander Marquardt, live for us there. Thank you so much. A mission to the moon. India launching a historic lunar mission, hoping to become the first country Plus to land a spacecraft on the moon's south pole. If successful, it would also become only the fourth country to execute a controlled landing on the moon. Christy Lou Stout has more. Two, one, zero. India is literally shooting for the moon with a historic mission that could cement its position as a space power. The Chandrayaan-3, which means moon vehicle in Sanskrit, launched Friday afternoon. As the name suggests, this is India's third lunar mission, and it's part of the country's greater bid to be a space power. During the last mission in 2019, the rover crashed after a hard landing. With this mission, they're aiming to land the rover near the moon's unexplored South Pole. Officials say the lander is due to reach the moon on August the 23rd. After the landing, scientists plan to deploy the rover and to conduct scientific experiments, including analyzing the chemistry of the lunar soil, measuring the temperature of the lunar surface, and scanning for moonquakes. On launch day, India's prime minister tweeted this, quote, 14th of July 2023 will always be etched in golden letters as far as India's space sector is concerned. Chandrayaan-3, our third lunar mission, will embark on its journey. This remarkable mission will carry the hopes and dreams of our nation. Now, success would be huge for India. So far, only three countries have successfully soft-landed a craft on the moon, the U.S., the former Soviet Union, and China. Christy Liu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Hollywood halted. Actors are walking off the job, joining writers on picket lines. It's the first actor's strike in 43 years. They're 
Union SAG-AFTRA represents about 160,000 performers. The walkout means new movies and TV shows will likely be delayed, even more than they already are, actually, during, due to the writers' strike. That's in theatres, on big networks, and on streaming services. Chloe Molas joins us live now. Chloe, it also means that actors can't really promote films that are already in the can. They can't do interviews. They can't go to the red carpet. They can't attend premieres. Just walk us through how Hollywood is going to be paralyzed by this. I mean, look, you saw it last night, Zane, on the red carpet for Oppenheimer, and the cast walked off, and they were making their signs uh, for the picket lines, which are going to be starting today. We're going to see them in front of the studios in Los Angeles, New York, some famous faces. Um, But this affects hundreds of thousands of people. You've already seen the writers on strike for two months, um, but I have a little bit more here to break this all down for you. The actors of Hollywood are on strike. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. Disrupting the industry in the midst of its critical summer movie season. The actors of the forthcoming movie Oppenheimer walking out of their premiere Thursday. It's been a really, really tense few days for a lot of people, not just actors, but everybody in the industry who are going to be affected by this decision, but affected by a decision that, that is necessary. We know it's a critical time at this point in the industry and the issues that are involved need to be addressed. They're difficult conversations. I know everybody's trying to get a fair deal. That's what's required. So we'll support that. And the actors from the highly anticipated Barbie movie voicing their support for their union amidst their global promotional tour. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm very much in support of all the unions and I'm a part of SAG, so I would absolutely stand by that. I would support the actors. Yeah. I love the unions, they've always protected all of the artists I know and and I I really want them to um, stand strong and win their fight. The union is fed up over compensation in the streaming era, enough to walk the line. We are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. The strike crippling a TV and movie business. Already limping during the Writers Guild of America strike. SAG-AFTRA reps around 160,000 entertainment professionals of all kinds. And action. Along with better pay, actors say residuals for past work have dried up in the streaming era. Add to that artificial intelligence. Actors say AI threatens their future. The Guild claiming that studios want to use AI to replace background actors. They proposed that our background performers should be able to be scanned, get paid for one day's pay, and their company should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and should be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. Studios say they've offered the highest percent increase in minimum pay in 35 years and that the actors aren't seeing reality. This is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption. Disney CEO Bob Iger notes the decline in revenue from traditional platforms and the industry-wide struggle to make streaming a viable alternative. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. How they plead poverty that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. 
Okay, so this is what we are hearing, Zane. We are hearing on one hand from people like Bob Iger and these studio heads who are saying, we're not making as much money as you think that we are. Streaming has hit, but it kind of hasn't. And we're still trying to figure all of this out. Obviously, AI is a cheaper alternative, but both writers and actors are worried that AI could take their jobs. And then you heard about this whole scanning extras, uh, you know, so that they could use the likeness in perpetuity. I keep pointing out, you know, shows like Game of Thrones or those movies. Remember, you know, Braveheart were these fighting scenes where you have thousands of actors in the background. Well, obviously, you know, those are CGI and computer generated. They're talking about scanning someone's face for a day, paying them one day's pay, and then never having to pay them again. Now, you heard uh, the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television come out and say that this is unprecedented in terms of how they've raised the minimum wage, um, minimum pay. But then they're also saying that the union has regrettably chosen a path that will lead to financial hardship for countless of thousands of people who depend on the industry. It's not just the actors, Zane, as you know. It's hair and makeup. It's the crews. It's the catering services. It's the security. It's everyone who's out of a job because writers and actors are on strike. So this has ramifications that go far beyond just the famous faces that we all know and love. And also consumers, we are going to see this affect all of us come mid-fall if there isn't some sort of middle ground or resolution, because how are they going to continue to make shows? You know, there are non-union actors, but if you are, you know, those are independent films and those projects are few and far between. So it's going to be really hard to see how they're going to be able to make content, wrap up these films, and promote these film and television projects. What does the landscape even look like in the spring zone? It's interesting because a lot of what the actors want seems perfectly reasonable and fair on paper. But as you point out, the studios are in a tough situation because there isn't as much money to go around as there used to be. So we'll see what happens. Claim the last life for us there. Thank you. The record of breaking summer heat wave gripping much of the northern hemisphere shows no sign of letting up record temperatures of some 54 degrees Celsius. That's 130 degrees Fahrenheit for the Americans out there are expected in parts of the western United States this weekend. About 100 million people remain under heat alerts there. Temperatures in Phoenix, Arizona have topped 43 degrees Celsius uh, for five days straight. Dangerous weather conditions in southern Europe, too, with tourists in many parts uh, of the continent urged to follow the most important advice in any foreign language. Stay hydrated. Drink up. It is hot out there. Barbie Nadeau is in Rome, uh, braving the elements. It's interesting because the Italian Meteorological Society said basically, listen, the earth has a high fever and Italy is feeling it firsthand. Just how brutal is it? How brutal is it, Barbie? How hot is it? I love Rome, by the way, but how hot is it right now where you are? <laughs> it is so hot. And, you know, one of the big problems here is it's, there's not a lot of air conditioning. Only about 10% of homes in Europe have air conditioning. It doesn't cool off at night. The humidity, we're under shade, but it doesn't matter because the humidity is so, 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 so strong. But we took a closer look at what the city of Rome is doing for the tourists. Uh, let's take a look. Rome, the eternal city lately is more like the infernal city. A deadly heat wave gripping southern Europe has made those trying to enjoy a Roman holiday rather uncomfortable. I mean, it's hot, <laughs> um, but yeah, it is It is a little disappointing. I was thinking today, like, because we're planning to, to not be out when it's the hottest, 
like we're missing some hours to be able to do stuff but um but ultimately to be able to enjoy it the most we are going to have to cut out those hot hours of the day temperatures are climbing and expected to top 40 degrees celsius 104 degrees fahrenheit in rome italians have named the heat wave cerberus after a figure in greek mythology that guarded the gates of hell Officials say the best way to combat the heat is with water, and Rome has no shortage of that. Rome has more than 4,000 public water fountains with drinkable water, and Rome's Civil Protection Agency has an app that will help visitors locate the closest one. The command center head, Giuseppe Napolitano, tells us that common sense is key and staying hydrated is essential. So is using water to cool off, he says. But tempting as it may be to swim in a fountain, doing so runs the risk of a several hundred dollar fine. Oh, we can't stay out all day, that's for sure. Yeah. I think we just have to take a lot of breaks and not try and overplan. The heat wave is supposed to last at least through next week, and for most tourists, canceling is not an option which means another week of hell, not fit for man or beast. And you know, Zane, it is just hot. And the idea that it's just going to get hotter and it's going to just last longer is really, really difficult. And you know, we're standing here in front of the Roman Colosseum. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people under this blazing sun right now, not even in the shade, waiting to get in, waiting to go on tours. These are vacations planned months ago. Of course they can't cancel them or change them. They thought of people come to Rome, try to see it all in a day or two. Those people are really suffering. And you know, they're staying hydrated. That's about all we can do right now, Zane. Yeah, the thing is, if you go to Rome, you can't just stay indoors. You know, Rome is basically an outdoor museum. You have to get out and go to the Colosseum. You can't go to Rome and not go to the Colosseum, as you meant. As you mentioned, these vacations have been planned months in advance. They can't cancel. Bobby Nadeau live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, straight ahead, the U.S. and China meeting once again to try to thaw a frosty relationship. We'll discuss the latest contacts with political scientists in Bremer after the break. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. More high-level talks are taking place between the U.S. and Beijing, this time in Indonesia. China's top diplomat says Washington needs to take real action to put relations back on the right track. Wang Yi and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met on the sidelines of the ASEAN Foreign Minister's Summit Thursday. The meeting, less than a month after the two met in Beijing, is the latest effort to ease tensions between the two superpowers. An official from the U.S. State Department said the talks were candid and that they were constructive. Mark Stewart has more. This meeting between U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and China's Wang Yi is part of this piecemeal effort to try to cool things down and improve the relations between the two nations. This 90-minute meeting happened on the sidelines of the ASEAN Foreign Ministers meeting 
in Jakarta, Indonesia. We've been hearing from a senior State Department official who said this was intended to be a follow-up to previous conversations in Beijing. We're told the two were able to pick up where things left off and then take the conversations to the next level of detail, adding the conversation was a bit more focused on action and concrete next steps. Secretary Blinken talked about the need for peace in the Taiwan Strait. According to a Chinese government readout, Wang told Blinken the next step for China and the U.S. would be to take real actions to put the relationship back on track. The two men also discussed the global flow of synthetic drugs such as fentanyl, human rights, and recent email hacks. Mark Stewart, CNN, Tokyo. It has certainly been a major week for global diplomacy from the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania to ASEAN, as Mark Stewart was just talking about in Indonesia. A key topic discussed at both is, of course, Russia's war in Ukraine. Joining me live now is Ian Bremer. He's the president and founder of the Eurasia Group, Angie Zero Media. He's also the author of The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. Let's start with this meeting between Anthony Blinken and Wang Yi uh, just obviously comes out a month, roughly around a month after Blinken traveled to Beijing. The relationship between the two superpowers at their pretty much one of their lowest points in history right now. Is this meeting perhaps possibly a precursor to Biden eventually meeting Xi Jinping later on this year? And what do you expect just in terms of any kind of breakthroughs, at least in the short term? Uh, it is, uh, Julia. Uh, I expect that Xi Jinping and Biden will be meeting in San Francisco on the sidelines of the APEX summit this fall. Uh, and, and certainly the more face time those two leaders have directly with one another with a lot of personal history and a reasonable amount of mutual respect, um, the more stable it is overall in the relationship. But the direction of travel continues to be negative, despite the flurry of high-level meetings between the U.S. and China over the last month and a half. There has been no resumption of direct military-to-military talks, this despite all sorts of tensions and confrontations over the South China Sea, over Taiwan, over China's military buildup. Um, there continues to be America focused on export controls um, and, and now investment outbound investment uh, reviews uh, that are going to, as the Americans say, de-risk the relationship. The reality is the Chinese see that as containment in their own economic development. So there's no trust uh, in the relationship between the two largest economies in the world and the political uh, atmospherics uh, have been deteriorating. And Wang also met with Sergei Lavrov. I mean, j just explain to us, I mean, ever since that sort of failed mutiny, that failed sort of, I guess, mini coup attempt, uh, rebellion in, in, in Russia, what has been the China's, what has been China's perspective on uh, Russia's war in Ukraine? Um, well, China continues to be a, a strong friend of Russia on the global stage, but they are not providing any military support to the Russians. And that was true even when Putin faced an existential threat with thousands of, uh, of, of revolting, of, of rebelling troops on their way to Moscow. China had nothing to say until it was resolved. Uh, and, and that's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, Russia really didn't have any friends on the global stage. Belarus, Iran, 
That's about it. Even Turkey recently, you saw with the with the summit in Vilnius, the Turks have been tilting much more strongly towards the United States, towards Sweden, towards Ukraine than they are with their on again, off again friends, the Russians. So Putin is feeling, I think, increasingly isolated on the global stage. And that includes uh, with the Chinese. And the Chinese are very happy to buy all sorts of goods from Russia at a relatively uh, lower cost. But but this is a very deeply asymmetric relationship. And the Russians are increasingly supplicants to Beijing, not a position that Putin wants to be in. All right. Speaking on the, uh, the summit in Vilnius that we just had, um, it seems though Zelensky now completely accepts the fact that it is virtually impossible for Ukraine to become a member of NATO as long as this war is going on. What are the right conditions uh, for Ukraine to be able to join NATO in a post-war environment? And should some kind of timeline have been laid out uh, for Zelensky? He wanted a timeline desperately, and there were a lot of NATO members that were prepared to give it to him. Uh, The Polish government, the Baltic governments, the French government, Emmanuel Macron flipped on this over the last couple months and was also saying we should give a timeline. It wasn't going to happen. Biden tried um, to telegraph that through uh, the East European allies. They didn't get that message. Biden then over the weekend before Vilnius uh, gave an interview on CNN with Fried Zakaria. He made it very clear this wasn't going to happen. They still didn't get the message. Zelensky shows up at Ukraine, I mean, in Vilnius, and the Ukrainian president publicly says this is absurd. I mean, he's outraged that he's not getting um, a direct timeline for NATO membership. That really wasn't a constructive position for Zelensky to take. I mean, of course, he's got domestic politics at home. He's under massive pressure. Heck, he's being targeted every day for assassination by the Russians. Like, it's hard for you and I, Julia, to put ourselves in his shoes. But still, uh, it was very clear that he wasn't going to get a timeline. And I think there are two reasons for that going forth. Uh, The first is that any timeline gets undermined if Trump becomes uh, the uh, the the nominee uh, for the GOP and and that Biden's not going to be able to actually follow through on it. Second is that many NATO allies, including the Americans and the Germans, the UK as well, think that, you know, giving the Ukrainians NATO today as opposed to waiting when we are ready for a ceasefire and negotiations and then basically saying, you know, this is uh, a, a, a carrot to be given in return for starting negotiations when the Ukrainians haven't taken all of their land. Remember, Zelensky's position is still every inch of their territory has to be taken back. That's Nobody thinks that that's actually going to happen, at least not militarily. So I think some of this is political weakness in the U.S. electoral cycle, and some of this is a recognition that there's going to have to be some horse trading um, as the war grinds on. And one of the sort of bigger fears that uh, Zelensky has is that, listen, if we are not a member of NATO and no clear timeline is actually laid out, then Vladimir Putin is going to use that as a precondition for ending the war. He's going to use that as a negotiation tactic. He's basically going to say, listen, you know, we will end the war as long as you do not become a member of NATO within the next, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I mean, is that something that you see happening? Do you see Vladimir Putin using that as some kind of precursor or precondition to ending the war? 
Well, Putin is not in a great position right now. Uh, I mean, he has already lost many of the war goals that he had attempted to achieve when he invaded a year and a half ago. Um, having said that, Julia, if Trump is the next president, Putin doesn't need to use that as a negotiating tactic. Uh, Trump will make very clear that it's not going to happen. And I, I don't know what the likelihood that Trump is going to be the next president is, but it's not 5%. Is it 20? Is it 25? Is it 30? I mean, it's a it's a meaningful possibility. And if you're Putin, that's absolutely what you're hoping for right now. So, I mean, again, Biden can say as long as it takes, the Americans are there. The United States is the dominant military power on the global stage. And if the Americans are suddenly led by someone that has a completely different perspective on what the Ukrainians should and should not get, it, the outcome for Putin and for everybody else is also going to be very different. So there's a lot of uncertainty that actually rests here on the U.S. electoral cycle. All right, Ian Bremer, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, still to come here. After the break, keeping an eye on crime, our own Anna Stewart comes face to face with AI technology to tackle uh, shoplifting, of all things. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the last trading session of the week. The major averages are solidly higher in early trading with earnings from the banking sector helping boost sentiment. Shares of J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo are all in the green after across-the-board earnings beats. Uh, a bit of weakness for shares of Citigroup. You see that red arrow there at the top of your screen. Dow Component, United Health Group is on the rise as well. Its earnings came in better than expected. It's also raising its profit forecast for the rest of the year. Three developments to bring you in the world of artificial intelligence. China will become one of the first countries to regulate the technology that powers popular services like, for example, ChatGPT. The country's internet watchdog has drawn up a list of rules and a key provision is that AI providers conduct security reviews and register their algorithms with the government. Here, meanwhile, the U.S. government investigating the maker of ChatGPT, the Federal Trade Commission, examining open AI's handling of personal data, as well as the tool's potential for giving users inaccurate information. And an Indian tech giant has announced a billion-dollar investment in AI. Wipro, which provides software services, says its entire staff of 250,000 people will get training on how to use artificial intelligence responsibly. Meantime, AI is now being used by some British retailers to track suspected shoplifters. Shoplifters, rather. Anna Stewart has been caught red-handed. <laughs> you uh, tried out the technology yourself. Uh, so, Anna, just walk us through the complications with this. Are there concerns, though, more seriously about privacy? They really are. I mean, AI is a useful tool in a number of sectors, uh, particularly, though, with facial recognition. It is faster. It is cheaper than humans. And depending on the algorithm, and this is a big talker at the moment, it can be a lot less biased as well. So it's probably little surprise that shops here in the UK are now harnessing AI so they can help recognize potential shoplifters or those they suspect of shoplifting. But as you say, this raises big questions. What if there is a mistake? And what about your biometrics? What if they're shared, not just at the shop where you're uh, supposedly caught, but what if your biometrics are actually shared between a network of other shops in the area? And all of this without your knowledge and without any kind of judicial process. So 
I gave it a go. Have a look. Got that feeling you're being watched? You probably are. And it's not just CCTV, AI could be watching too. So your camera should have picked me up as I walk through the front door. Yeah. So if you were the security guard and you discovered that I'd stolen something, you would go to this and find me. Yeah, I'd, re I'd scroll down and um, look at the system and I'd know what time you've walked in. So I'd be able to find your face. And in fact, here's your face. Dorothy. Stole a load of steaks and ran out. I'm a suspect, a case of mistaken identity, I assure you. But here's what happens next. A suspect's biometrics are stored by Facewatch for a year. If they return to the shop, their presence will be alerted to staff. And for prolific thieves, all those suspected of taking a high-value item, the biometrics could be shared with other stores in the area. All legal under British law. I was reporting all these crimes to the police, uh, trying to help the police, giving them CCTV, and nothing ever happened. This didn't start in a store, but a wine bar. London's oldest wine bar, in fact, run by Facewatch founder Simon Gordon. Our goal is to be the trusted, and we are, the trusted name in facial recognition in, and crime prevention. We're just here to cr prevent crime. We, we don't, isn't that the police's job? Are you filling a gap that shouldn't be filled by private businesses? Everybody should be taking um, security seriously. Gordon says there's no bias in their AI algorithms and the company also uses human superfacial recognizers. But mistakes happen. Accuracy was 99.85% in June, according to Facewatch. If you're put on a watch list, your information is held for up to a year because there's no real due process. This is all done by a private company. There's no police involvement. There's no direct evidence that anyone's actually committed a crime. So you could very easily be wrongly placed on watch list and have your life really changed because some AI-powered technology has flagged you as a criminal, which you aren't. For shoppers leaving a store with Facewatch tech, there's a mix of opinions. I don't want my face to be recognised. I'm just doing my shopping. I mean, it's uncomfortable, but I mean, I understand why they're doing it. I think in this day and age, like even our phone, facial recognition or like biometrics and everything, it's all around us. So I don't think there's any escaping it. Back at the supermarket, it's time to see how quickly alarm bells will ring now I've been flagged. That was quick. Um, I didn't even make it down the first aisle. That's a match. It's 99% similarity. You would trigger an alert in a store down the road if you'd carried out more than one crime here, or if it was over a certain value. Well, thanks for showing me how it works. Could I ask that you delete my profile? Absolutely. Not really, a thief. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you did I was delete it. Did he delete it? I should check. It is kind I'll of go creepy, back into though. the shop and see. And it's Stuart, live for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, still to come here on First Move after the break, lifting the lid on lab-grown meat, helping the planet and addressing ethical issues. Is there any downside to upside foods? They're next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. 
at this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. All right, it is chicken, technically, but not as we know it. You're looking at food that actually came from cells from a chicken rather than the chicken itself. Now the U.S. has given two firms the green light or permission to start producing lab-grown chicken products. They're called Upside Foods and Good Meat. Their cells are grown with the help of nutrients like amino acids in massive bioreactors. As you can see, it kind of looks like a brewery. And Upside Foods chicken is already on one restaurant menu in San Francisco. Uma Valetti is the CEO. He joins us live now. Uma, thank you so much for being with us. So from what... from how I understand it, this is derived from live animal stem cells uh, that then multiplied and eventually become muscle, fat and connective tissue. Just explain to our audience um, the sort of process by which this kind of chicken is produced. Zane, thanks for having me. Uh, delighted to be here. So Upside Foods is cultivating chicken directly from live chicken cells. And when I say live chicken cells, we take like a drop of cells from either a chicken or an egg, and we provide them with rich nutrients in a clean, controlled environment like the one I'm sitting in. And after two to three weeks, the cells do what they naturally do when they get good nutrients. They grow. And after two to three weeks, we harvest it. There is no slaughter in the process, and we make products we love. That could be a chicken breast, a chicken fillet, or a sausage, or uh, simply southern fried chicken. It's interesting because I'm wondering, who is the target audience? So, you know, obviously no animals are slaughtered in the process, which is obviously good, you know, good news. But, um, you know, if you're targeting obviously people who are vegetarian or vegan or people who don't want animals to be slaughtered, um, then there are products like Beyond Meat, um, Impossible Foods, for example, that use plant-based protein. This is not that. So who, who is your target audience? I mean, right front and center, we're looking at people who love eating meat. And as humans, over thousands of years, we've evolved with the love for meat always at the center of plate. And that's the group that we are targeting. Anyone who loves to eat meat from real animals and animal cells and want to maintain the traditions and cultures in any dish they cook, in any cultures that they come from. Because meat is such a universal, desirable food for us. What we're trying to walk away from is the downsides of how we bring meat of that scale to the table. And this is the opening bell in declaring that, yes, we can bring the meat we love from real animal cells by growing it directly from the cells versus trying to grow an entire animal, slaughtering it, and then dealing with all the downsides in the intense animal production. Right, so if I love to eat meat, but I don't enjoy the downside in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and also animals being slaughtered, I am the target audience. So. Just explain to us the technology and the relationship between reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I think that's important for the audience to understand. Absolutely. So, like I said, this is the this is the only technology that I can think of that exists in the world that can actually provide us the choice of adding, act, you know, having real meat, and also preserve the life we care about, animal life, 
the societies, the communities uh, that we live in. And much of the world we're living in is suffering from changes of, related to climate. And when we think about food production, it takes about two years to grow a cow. It takes about nine months to grow a pig and about two to three months to grow a chicken. And in that lifetime, the animal has to be fed and it's going to have to go and do its you know, duties and you know, raising animals, uh, you know, healing broken bones, you know, peeing, pooping, all of that. Now, if we say we don't have to do any of that, we can raise meat in two weeks versus two years or two months. We don't have to feed them for that long. You don't have the same level of greenhouse gas emissions. And we have zero methane because animal cells do not produce methane. It's the industrial process that we are shortening by saying two weeks to grow meat versus two months or two years. And that's where the big uh, opportunity to decrease greenhouse gas emissions comes from. Just a shorter period of production. And the elimination of methane is, is, is really key here. Just in terms of the production process, I mean, it, it seems expensive, I would imagine, and, and pretty complex. So what does that mean in terms of what customers have to pay out of their pockets, paying for upside foods versus ordinary chicken? What will be the difference in terms of, you know, how expensive it is? Great question. Uh, eventually, we don't think upside chicken is going to be more expensive than conventional chicken. I think the path to conventional price parity is inevitable. Of course, it's complex to make it. It takes a lot of research, innovation, complex building of all of these things to come together. So it's expensive for us to make it at this point. But when we go to consumers, we are planning to provide it as a premium to organic because it provides all of the benefits of eating chicken like we love without the downside. So we think maybe initially premium to organic and with time, conventional parity or even beating it. All right. Uma Valetti, CEO of Upside Foods. Thank you so much and congratulations. All right, welcome back. She is pretty in pink and ready for business. Since Mattel launched the iconic Barbie doll in 1959, she has captured the hearts and imaginations of millions of people around the world. She's been a lawyer. She's been a doctor. She has flown into space and even become president. Now, business is booming ahead of the Barbie live action movie next week. Vanessa Yorkevich joins us live now. Uh, things are different, though, for Barbie compared to when you and I were growing up. Actually, I don't even know how old you are. I'm guessing we're the, the same, same age, age, roughly. <laughs> yeah, roughly, more or less. Um, and so back in the 1980s, early 90s, you know, everybody had a Barbie doll. It's not the same anymore. Is Barbie still relevant? And how will that affect uh, box office numbers for the movie? Right. And I think that's what this movie is designing, designed to test out. I mean, Barbie really needs no introduction. She's been around for 64 years. And Mattel, the maker of Barbie, has done lots of brand partnerships before, clothing, coloring books. But this is the first live action movie. And the president of Mattel tells me that he's hoping that the nostalgia of Barbie brings longtime fans into the theater, but also, Zane, tries to go after a brand new audience. Watch. Barbara Millicent Roberts, you know her as Barbie. Parents, Mattel, born in 1959 but doesn't look a day over 19. Everyone had a Barbie and it was the thing to have a Barbie. Next week, Barbie comes to life in a new movie with an A-list director and actors. Hi Barbie! Hi Ken! 
distributed by CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. It's an incredibly important milestone for the brand. Barbie, beloved by girls and boys around the world, has had ups and downs. Back in 2014-15, we, we hit a low. Uh, and it was a moment to reflect in the context of why, why, why did Barbie lose relevance? She didn't reflect the physicality, the look, if you will, of the world around us. Now Barbie, Ken, and friends have many different skin tones, shapes, and special traits that make them look more like us. But this year's first quarter sales at Mattel slumped, down 22% from last year's. How is Mattel and Barbie viewed as a brand? There's been a lot of decline in that differentiation and that relevance that keep a brand fresh and top of mind from a purchase perspective. And when that happens, brands go into a place of fatigue. Mattel hopes this new movie will give them the boost they're looking for. We also now have the opportunity to reach new ages and stages that ultimately, from a business perspective, provides huge merchandising and monetization opportunities. We're standing in front of Barbie. At Hombomb Toys, owner Eileen Geyer can't keep movie Barbie on the shelf. Within a day, they were gone. Have you always had Barbie and Ken and friends in store? Absolutely. It's a staple. It's the moms and dads who are more nostalgic than the kids. But that nostalgia isn't for everyone. I don't know how she's evolved. Yeah. Like, does she have a college degree now? The movie has calculated for that. We haven't played with Barbie since we were like five years old. And for others, you're never too old for Barbie. I am 90 years old. Or I should say 90 years young. (laughs) Carol Spencer didn't grow up playing with Barbies. This was my first project. But Barbie wouldn't be, well, Barbie without her. I was a designer for the Barbie doll starting in 1963 for over 35 years, and I loved every minute of it. While Carol helped make Barbie, Barbie helped make Mattel. As other toys have come and gone, Barbie is still strutting. Barbie really carried Mattel for a great many years. I thought of every child who played with the Barbie doll as my child. So let me tell you, I have a big family, (laughs) and I love it. And that is the magic and power of Barbie. And when Barbie launched in 1959, her job was to be a teen fashion model. She then evolved into a fashion designer. And then consumers started asking questions. Could Barbie be more than that? Not that those careers are bad, but they wanted to see her in more male-dominated fields. So we had lawyer Barbie. We had scientist Barbie, astronaut Barbie, as you said. And Zane, of course, here we are. Reporter Barbie came into play. Oh, there she is with the microphone and everything. And we have Camera Woman Barbie. Barbie. (laughs) I love the reporter Barbie. And by the way, speaking of fashion, love that you wore pink for this interview. Very on brand, Vanessa. Vanessa Yelkevich, thank you so much. And that is it for the show. I'll be back in a couple of hours with One World. Connect the World is up next. You're watching CNN.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.